0: Hello, friends. It is so good to have you join us. Today, we are doing part two of our two part series where we are sharing a lecture that Jeff gave as part of the annual Trembath lecture at Concordia University, Irvine. Jeff was able to be the recipient of the Trembath Endowment, which meant that he was able to set aside all of his regular teaching duties for a semester and research instead. So, this particular episode is going to be the, the lengthier, more detailed description of what he found in his research. It's going to be definitely more academic. If you haven't already, you might want to start with the first part which offers a short sort of 10 minute summary of his research followed by um, some questions and answers. So you might want to start there if you haven't already otherwise just come along and enjoy the ride. Thank you all ahead. Four.
1: Throughout my two decades of teaching in church related contexts, I've encountered three important truths. One, false religious teachings can be traumatizing. Two, even the truth taught in an authoritarian way is traumatizing. And three, repeated religious intellectual trauma renders individuals especially susceptible to further forms of traumatizing abuse. I'll focus on Lutheran perspectives on education, not to be parochial here, but because genuine Lutheran theological epistemology, that is a theory of knowledge, offers an antidote to various forms of abuse within church and society. Much of this abuse has an indirect but significant connection to what Lutherans call theologies of glory. One need not be officially Lutheran to embrace the benefits of a theology of the cross in this context, just as the world can appropriate Thomistic, natural law thinking without joining the Roman Catholic Church, or appreciate nonviolence without entering a Mennonite community, or champion the principle of religious liberty in America without becoming a Baptist. So what precisely is this core Lutheran epistemic perspective? It's an approach to knowledge profoundly influenced by William of Ockham, who lived from 1287 to 1347. It's grounded in radical contingency, radical honesty, and radical freedom to take our perceptions seriously. It's this epistemology that made the very act of producing and subscribing to the Lutheran confessions possible in the first place. Lutheran epistemology, undergirded by confidence in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and on account of Christ alone, can open up a genuinely free space in which individual believers are invited, and perhaps even ethically obligated, to think what they think they should think. My doctoral work focused on the history of religious epistemology during the 16th century. And never did I assume that this seemingly ivory tower topic would have anything to do with the lives of the students I would end up teaching over the subsequent two decades. But in meetings with students, I frequently heard about the ways in which unhealthy forms of religious thinking have devastated their lives. This devastation sometimes involved difficulties with the theological ideas and relationships within churches but it also devastated many students' ability to exercise their critical reasoning in everyday life. For context, permit me to list the marks of religious intellectual trauma, as noted by Philip Grieven and summarized by Donald Caps. These and other scholars have been suggesting that as we seek to understand why abuse seems to occur so often within religious communities, we uncover an unpleasant reality that the teachings of some religious communities can themselves be traumatizing. And the following are some ways in which symptoms of this traumatization manifests itself. One, repression or amnesia regarding the experiences that were so traumatizing. Two, mind-splitting, where the threatening experience is cut off from the rest of one's thinking processes and not incorporated into them. Three, Withdrawal of feeling or affect, a blandness or roteness in thought processes associated with the threatening experience. And four, the loss of confidence in the testimony of one's own perceptions and senses regarding these and similar experiences. That is, when the subject of religion is discussed, one tends to defer to others and to their perceptions and judgments. And it's this last mark of religious intellectual trauma that is especially malignant and all too common in religious circles. In everyday life, most of us believe that we should trust our immediate perceptions rather than those of others. But of course, in the history of philosophy, politics, and theology, we also discover reasons to distrust our perceptions. For instance, Plato questioned the value of our empirical perceptions by noting that, among other things, our eyes deceive us when we see a stick seem to bend as it's inserted into a pool of water. Additionally, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us that a rational judgment is suspect, given our fallen condition. We suppress the truth that should be obvious to us through our self-justifying unrighteousness. Luther himself subordinated his fallen human biases to biblical revelation. All of these cautions about putting too much trust in our rationality are legitimate and worth considering. Nonetheless, it's also the case that Luther overcame his deep internal struggles not by deferring to Mother Church or some other human authority, but by being honest about his perceptions regarding life, the Bible, church, and society. He wasn't always right. Sometimes he was way off base. Yet Luther had one refreshing quality. He said what he thought, and he thought what he thought he should think. This leads me to wonder, to what extent have we in Christian higher education extended the same liberty that enabled Luther's reform movement to young people in church-related schools that bear Luther's name. Were we to encounter a young Luther in our congregations, would we drive him or her out of our community? Or would we applaud their intellectual courage? My anecdotal experience is that, just as Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor would re-crucify Jesus, were Jesus to return in the flesh without pomp and circumstance, many of our congregations, schools, and seminaries might excommunicate or at least shun a Luther redivivus. Let me illustrate what I'm saying with a hypothetical case that resembles many of the conversations I've had over the years as a professor. Imagine that I have a student who is a lifelong Lutheran, loves exploring her faith through Bible studies and extracurricular lectures, and she goes on short-term mission trips each summer. Suppose also that she is a science major, interested in learning how the layers of ice in the Arctic Circle can shed light on atmospheric history. Finally, suppose that she gets the opportunity of a lifetime to serve as an intern on a project wherein ice core samples are extracted from Greenland's ice fields. In this context, she might encounter cognitive dissonance that opposes her underlying theological commitments against what seems obvious from her fieldwork, that she is able to read 12,000 years of atmospheric history by examining one cylinder of ice. For most researchers, this might just be another day on the job. Yet for this researcher, it doubles her estimation of the age of the Earth, according at least to what she was taught growing up in her conservative congregation. One might be quick to jump in here into the scientific details of this particular situation. But let me insist, however, that the facts and interpretation of the data here are not essential to my overall agenda. What is important is that in her community, she might sense implicitly or hear explicitly that if she affirms 12,000 years, just 12,000 years, of perceived ice strata, she is acting immorally. Pause here for a moment. Even if it manifests merely as a small, nagging voice from her youth, she's been taught through her church education not to trust her perceptions and to feel guilty when she analyzes data honestly. Please resist the urge to jump into the tentative nature of scientific theories here or whether a left-wing conspiracy funded this hypothetical research project. None of that matters as much as the fact that she simultaneously believes that the data point clearly to at least 12,000 years of Earth's history and also that to admit this is to become a virtual traitor to her faith tradition. This is what intellectual traumatization through religious ideology can look like. In this case, no one was beaten or groped or body shamed. No one was yelled at. It was a subtle trauma, but it destabilized her critical thinking apparatus and created unnecessary anxiety and tension from her faith. Our hypothetical researcher now has two options. On the one hand, she might toss out the religion of her youth. This would likely cause a sense of grief and loss, but it would also provide a great deal more freedom for her day-to-day professional life. If she's working toward a profession in the hard sciences, this motivation to abandon her childhood faith would be strong and might be financially advantageous. On the other hand, she could cower before the familial and ecclesial authorities in her life and abandon her vocation as a scientist, at least in this particular area of research thus alleviating her intellectual tension despite the pain of closing a professional door. Now, suppose a different young woman is interested in becoming a deaconess. Suppose in a class with progressive Protestant friends, she asserts that she is a biblical inerrantist. She explains that she thinks Paul clearly teaches that a woman is not to become a lead pastor in a Christian congregation her peers might chide her and even shun her. In this progressive context, she might also be met with moral condemnation for her honest attempt at biblical interpretation. That is, her view would be offensive to some of her peers not because there is something intellectually inappropriate with her understanding of a particular first-century writer, but because there is something immoral about the conclusions she draws from this text. Both of these hypothetical illustrations are the sort of experience I routinely hear about during my time as a Christian higher ed professor. The emotional and intellectual damage from both types of story can be severe. And in cases like these, the question of truth is not usually paramount. Instead, open-mindedness, intellectual curiosity, and allegiance to evidence are sacrificed in order to align with one group or another. It seems as if debates about the age of the earth or the role of women in ministry too often become more about bringing people into line with a group's thinking through the mechanism of shaming than a mutually supportive academic guild in which faculty members and students join in a common pursuit of understanding the truth. The result of all this is that faith formation gives way to the larger implicit lesson about the importance of being compliant. Such an approach to religious education herds students into tribalism rather than authentic academic inquiry. And it's precisely the sort of thing Augustine decried in his Confessions, Book 12, wherein he states the following regarding divergent interpretations of the Genesis creation account. He writes, quote, My opponents love their own opinion, not because it's true, but because it is their own. Otherwise, they would equally respect another true interpretation as valid, just as I respect what they say when their affirmation is true, not because it is theirs, but because it is true. And even if they were right, yet their position would be the temerity not of knowledge, but of audacity. It would be the product not of insight but of conceit. Now, unfortunately, various parties within our culture wars have abandoned appeals to shared experience, evidence, and thoughtful arguments in favor of loyalty to cliques, fidelity to authoritarian leaders, and partisan rhetoric. In other words, society as a whole is in grave danger due to the abandonment of truth with which we are now forced to reckon. Our current challenge, then, is to figure out how to get people to recognize truth and to determine whether intellectual coercion can ultimately have any good role in its pursuit. Regarding the issue of coercion within the context of civil government, Luther might have been inconsistent. But with respect to faith and the privacy of one's own inner life, Luther consistently asserted that coercion cannot, cannot induce genuine faith. For instance, in his treatise on civil government, Luther wrote, faith is a free work to which no one can be forced. It is a divine work in the spirit, let alone then that outward force should compel or create it. These poor blind folk do not know what a vain and impossible thing they undertake in persecuting alleged heretics. For no matter how hard they command, nor how strongly they rave, they cannot bring people any further than that they should follow with mouth and hand, but the heart they cannot compel. Elsewhere he wrote, quote, Everyone must believe solely because it is God's word and because he inwardly finds it to be the truth, even though an angel from heaven and the whole world should preach against it. End quote. This represents a foundational component of the Lutheran tradition at its best, and it represents an antidote to the toxic intellectual environment in which we find ourselves today. Molech is my shorthand for the phenomenon in which a religion's original principles get upended and become something monstrous. Here I'm alluding to the fact that while the official religion of ancient Israel rejected child sacrifice— popular expressions of Israelite religion often performed exactly that horrific rite. As Jeremiah says, quote, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Jeremiah thirty-two, thirty-five. Even Solomon built an altar for Molech, 1 Kings 11-7. I mention this because I believe that, in the name of the true religion, pedagogical practices within conservative Lutheranism too often sacrifice the psychological and intellectual well-being of young people in the name of confessional purity. For all the orthodox intentions, the end result of this is blasphemous, and causes young people harm. When I speak of the spirit of Molech in the churches, I'm often talking about the ways ecclesial and parental fear-based approaches to religion help churches ignore the suffering caused by toxic ideas and the abuse that is made more likely as congregations and young people are taught to ignore clear evidence of wrongdoing for the sake of the institution we have too often deactivated young people's epistemological capabilities in order to keep them in step with what parents believe to be the true faith. It's as if some parents fear religious authorities more than they love their children. This is particularly tragic for Lutherans, heirs to a tradition that was birthed in intellectual boldness and fidelity to the truth over and against false appeals to authority. My advocacy of critical thinking and independent thought for students sometimes worries parents. My recommendation to parents in this context is as follows. Unless the ideas your children hold and the moral decisions they make pose an immediate physical danger to themselves or others, it's best to allow them to question your tradition and remain intellectually free. Parents have nothing to gain by rejecting my advice here. And yet, there is a chance that parents who follow my advice will witness their children coming around to their perspective in the long run. In either case, if they extend intellectual freedom to young people, they are likely to retain a strong, loving relationship. If parents ostracize their children for disagreeing with them, however, it is unlikely that the relationship will be able to recover. And it is unlikely that rejecting a child for his or her beliefs will ever motivate the sort of changes in perspective a parent wants for their child. Even if authoritarian pressures to conform were to work with children in the short term, it would have a horrific result in the long term. That is, by losing the ability to think for themselves, they will be more susceptible to manipulation and abuse. They will be more susceptible to dangerous ideologies since when another authority figure becomes dominant in their lives, they will be conditioned to being compliant and exchange their old uncritical allegiance to parents for a new uncritical allegiance. In other words... I'm not attempting to give you permission to offer intellectual freedom to your children. I'm proposing that it is morally obligatory and theologically appropriate for you to do so. It's not that you don't have to sacrifice your children to Molech. It's that God is telling you to knock that sort of nonsense off. There's admittedly no such thing as a uniform Lutheran epistemology especially since it mitigates against obsessive system-building and is not a current intellectual movement that would rival, say, the so-called reformed epistemologists. There are, however, epistemological principles throughout Lutheran thinking that flow from and can be found in many of Luther's own writings, especially the Disputation Concerning Man, 1536, which primarily sets forth his theological anthropology. But the following theses are particularly relevant to our conversation here. Thesis four. And it is certainly true that reason is the most important and the highest in rank among all things. And in comparison with other things of this life, it is the best and something divine. Thesis five. Reason is the inventor and mentor of all the arts, medicines, laws, and of whatever wisdom power, virtue, and glory men possess in this life. Thesis 6. God did not, after the fall of Adam, take away this majesty of reason, but rather confirmed it. Thesis 7. In spite of the fact that it is of such majesty, it does not know itself a priori, but only a posteriori. Thesis 18. And what is deplorable is that man does not have full and unerring control over either his counsel or thought, but is subject to error and deception therein. Thesis 26. Therefore, those who say that natural things have remained untainted after the fall philosophize impiously in opposition to theology. Behind most of this thinking from Luther is the epistemological heritage of William of Ockham, the English Franciscan and nominalist philosopher. Scholars like CUI alumnus David Anderson, author of Martin Luther, The Problem of Faith and Reason, have noted this connection before, but the connections and implications remain hazy for many Lutheran intellectual historians since contemporary understanding of Ockham himself is only recently coming into better focus. Luther studied Occam directly, but also inherited Occamist intellectual principles, especially during his time at the University of Erfurt. Scholars might mistakenly miss the strength of the connection between Luther and Occam because the German reformer frequently went out of his way to note his rejection of Occam's and German professor Gabriel Beale's soteriology. Nevertheless, we ought to consider that clarifying distinctions and differences is often more important for a thinker who has important affinities with a notable philosopher than when considering someone from a completely different intellectual perspective. At one point, despite rejecting his teaching on grace, Luther calls Ockham his, quote, dear master, end quote, and groups him with John Duns Scotus as, quote, two of the best, end quote, medieval thinkers. Elsewhere, he writes that Occam, quote, was superior to all the others in mental acumen, end quote, and refuted, quote, all the rest of the erroneous theological positions of his time, end quote. So Luther appreciated and appropriated key principles from Occam. So, what did this look like? First, Luther appreciated Occam's willingness. To let seeming anomalies stand rather than force them into an artificially consistent system. For instance, Luther appropriated a phrase commonly used by Occam,, quote, "This bothers me to death," end quote." This referred to an experience of cognitive dissonance that occurs, Luther says, when two pieces of information are particularly irksome and difficult to resolve." Nonetheless. There were many times when both Occam and Luther thought it best to let these irksome tensions remain, at least tentatively. Second, Occam's nominalism and rejection of the reality of universals precluded the use of synthetic a priori's about the nature of particular material bodies, including the nature of humanity. And this was especially important to the development of Lutheran Christology and Eucharistic theology. Luther writes, for instance, quote, did not want the term man to be univocal but equivocal, so that humanity is one thing in Peter, another thing in Christ. In philosophy, man, according to his nature, does not signify a son of God or a divine person. This is the very thing which we say by the term communication of properties. A syllogism is not allowed with regard to the mysteries of the faith and theology. Philosophy constitutes an aberration in the realm of theology. We can see how this played out over the subsequent decades of the Reformation era via a transcript of the Colloquy of Montbillard, 1586, which was recently translated by my colleague, Dr. C.J. Armstrong. There, we find the following exchange between the consolidator of the Genevan Reformation, Theodore Beza, and the Lutheran representative, Jacob Andrei, which illustrates this epistemological difference between the Lutherans and the Calvinists pretty well. Here it is Dr. Jacob. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, the bread which we break is a communication of the body of Christ. He does not say it is a communication of the remission of sins, but rather it is a communication of the body of Christ. Dr. Beza, prove it with a syllogism. Dr. Jacob, sayings of Holy Scripture do not need to be proven with a syllogism. They are rather believed on account of divine authority. Dr. Beza, make a syllogism. Dr. Jacob, this is a novelty and unheard of in any school that testimonies of Scripture are proved with a syllogism. Dr. Beza, Make a syllogism. Dr. Jacob, the genuine meaning of the sayings of Scripture should not be proved with a syllogism, but rather should be demonstrated from Scripture. And what kind of communication is it where there is no reception? Now, elsewhere in the text, uh, Andrei frequently requests biblical support for the Reformed axiom finitum non capax infiniti which is to say, the finite is not capable of containing the infinite. At one point, tossing up his hands in exasperation, uh, Dr. Jacob cried, quote, I still hear no testimony of scripture, but rather just a philosophical principle that the finite is not capable of containing the infinite. That has its own place in philosophy and the natural sciences, but it cannot hold a place in this mystery, end quote. This sort of thinking whether Andreae knew it or not, could also be found in Occam's own philosophical playbook. Third, the principle of parsimony, often called Occam's razor, helped Luther embrace the real presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper without having to appeal to elaborate metaphysical explanations, whether the Aristotelian Thomistic concern for substance and accidents or the Reformed idea that in order to receive the body of Christ, one had to be transported to the throne room of God for a spiritual feast. This is perhaps the most significant theological insight that Luther drew from Occam's philosophy. He writes, quote, To hold that real bread and wine, and not merely their accidents, are present on the altar would be much more probable and require fewer superfluous miracles if only the Church had not decreed otherwise. When I learned later what church it was that decreed this, namely the Thomistic church, that is, the Aristotelian church, I grew bolder, and after floating in a sea of doubt, I at last found rest for my conscience in the above view, namely, that it is real bread and real wine in which Christ's real flesh and real blood are present in no other way and to no less degree. Than the others assert them to be under their accidents. I reached this conclusion because I saw that the opinions of the Thomists, whether approved by Pope or by Council, remain only opinions, and would not become articles of faith even if an angel from heaven were to declare otherwise. Galatians one eight. For what is asserted without the Scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. But this opinion of Thomas hangs so completely in the air without support of scripture or reason that it seems to me he knows neither his philosophy nor his logic. End quote. Here, Occam's thought allowed Luther to simply receive revelation about the Lord's Supper without having to support it through unaided human reason or natural theology. In good Occamist fashion, he was able to rest in a revealed mystery and recognize that it is in fact intellectually responsible to let the mystery remain mysterious, rather than to try and prop the mystery up with artificial and contorted philosophical speculation. Fourth, and most significantly for Lutheran thought, Luther operated within the framework of Occam's Via Moderna, this distinction between the potentia absoluta, that is, God's absolute power, and the potentia ordinata, God's ordained power. This put him at odds with the so-called Via Antiqua, which effectively placed God under an obligation to a law or rational principle that was, in a way, higher than God. For instance, Anselm's Cur Deus Homo presents God as redeeming humankind in the only way possible. The Via Moderna, on the contrary, assumed that God was radically free to redeem humanity in any way the divine will determined. Along with this, Occam and like-minded scholars refused to admit that God owed anything to human beings when they performed seemingly meritorious works, according to the potentia absoluta. The only basis for saying there is a fixed economy of salvation, then, is the fact that God revealed a particular way of salvation, that God freely determined ahead of time that this way of salvation was a certain way and that God doesn't lie. This understanding of soteriology is described as divine acceptation. Now, while Luther considered Occam a synergist with respect to the doctrine of justification, the concept of divine voluntarism, wherein God determined to save humanity in a particular way without any external coercion, or need to obey a changeless cosmic law, was precisely the conceptual key that opened the door to Luther's evangelical breakthrough. While late medieval theologians tended to rely on the principle of facere quad in se est, loosely, do your best and God will do the rest, this soteriology was not mandated by any rational principle. Rather, it's how these late medievals happened to think God-operated. That is, they believed that God graded people on a curve and chose to grade on a curve freely. Luther was later able to apply the concept of divine voluntarism to the idea that instead of judging humans according to whether they had done their best, an introspective question that spiritually tormented Luther, God could choose to view believers as co-heirs with their bridegroom Christ or, as it would be developed in terms of forensic justification, that God had the freedom to consider sinful humans righteous by choosing to impute the righteousness of Christ to their account. Yet whatever the economy of salvation happens to be, it must be revealed to humans. There is no way to use pure reason to anticipate how God will deal with their sins. Luther, therefore, denied Occam's idea that God would treat the best efforts of an individual as meritorious, but he agreed with Occam to a fundamental point. That God doesn't owe it to anyone to consider their works meritorious. But he chooses to do so. I should note briefly here that recent scholarship has presented some helpful correctives to the idea that Occam himself was semi-Pelagian. According to Rega Wood, quote, One of Occam's most important theological themes is that God, and only God, controls the offer of assistance. Salvation can only come from God's gracious and liberal acceptance of human souls. In any case, Luther and the Lutherans took this and ran with it in a different direction. But they shared with the Via Moderna the rejection of the Via Antiqua's insistence that God was constrained to operate in some rationally predetermined way. This is where, incidentally, Luther's language about reason being the devil's whore makes more sense. For it's in this epistemological context that he's referring to an unwarranted trust in abstract reason within the realm of theology, apart from special revelation and in such a way that God is beholden to philosophical axioms that may seem inviolate to us. For Achim and Luther, God invented the rules of the universe. While this may sound capricious or arbitrary, both thinkers also noted that the ordained power that God happened to establish for us humans happily turned out to reveal his graciousness. While I think Luther could have presented his point more elegantly, his famous line at the Marburg Colloquy, quote, if God ordered me to eat dung, I would do it, makes more sense in light of Occam's belief that God has the freedom to command whatever God wants with respect to, to our contingent world and also that there is no a priori way to determine why eating dung is bad for us and I should also note that though I will not push it too far there have been some recent medical studies that have indeed found promising applications for the consumption of fecal matter with rare conditions and debilitating allergies Uh, this is something being done by Dr. Rima Rachid uh, in uh, Boston Children's Hospital now The idea of the potentia ordinata has important implications for epistemology in the realm of material objects. By rejecting the via antiqua, Occam and Luther both opened up important space for empirical research in natural philosophy. Instead of sitting in an armchair, employing abstract reason about the way the natural world must act or should act in this or that situation a human knower needed to go out and observe data about what, in fact, was going on in the world. This is arguably a key trajectory that led to methodological naturalism and progress in the hard sciences. The fifth and final alchemist principle adopted by Luther is a natural implication of the rejection of the via antiqua, the importance of sola scriptura, it was the authority of Scripture, by the way, that gave Occam the boldness to declare Pope John XXII a heretic, something unthinkable without the epistemological break from the older way of thinking in Western Christianity. If natural theology and a priori reason are unable to produce knowledge of the hidden God, the only reliable source of theological knowledge is God's special revelation, the Bible. As Fredoso writes, Occam is not a radical intellectual separatist, but he is in fact less hopeful than Aquinas or even Scotus in his assessment of just how much philosophical truth natural reason is capable of acquiring without the aid of divine revelation. So note that neither Occam nor Luther should be described as fideists, if by this term we mean an irrational, unfounded belief in something without any appeal to evidence. What they were after was a rejection of the idea that natural reason could or should judge the mysteries of Scripture. The question of whether Scripture should be a source for knowledge in the first place remained a legitimate and worthwhile question. It wasn't so much a tension between faith and reason, but rather a tension between faith in natural theology versus faith in revealed theology. In all this, we see that Lutheran epistemology is not accidentally Occamist due to the historical coincidence that Luther studied and approved of Occam's work in a philosophy class. Rather, Occam's approach to knowledge is what made authentic Lutheran thought possible in the first place, especially with respect to the way Lutherans do theology, how they view the two natures of Christ and how they view the real presence of Christ in the Eucharistic feast. The implications of Luther's alchemism include an affirmation of intellectual freedom for research and appeals to conscience. Why? Not because conscience itself is infallible. Rather, since alchemist thought and later Lutheran epistemology diminish the value of ecclesial theological authority and a priori reason, the individual is left only with the call to think what one thinks one should think. I derive this language from Occam's ethical writings. To understand this ethical approach, we need to recall the central question of Plato's Euthyphro Dialogue, which asks, is something good because God demands it, or does God demand something because it's good? Occam's concept of the two powers of God led him to conclude that something is good because God commands it. It could hardly be otherwise for him, since God is radically free, and the world God established is an expression of God's will, which is a good and gracious will, as things turn out. Nevertheless, this divine voluntarism regarding ethics also entails a radical contingency with respect to the divine commands themselves. When God demands something in a particular ancient context, we are not necessarily permitted to turn it into a universal ethical principle or rule. So while it would in fact be a sin to eat lobster in ancient Israel, not just a social faux pas, it is no longer a sin in our present context, so long as one doesn't think it's a sin. Christians who love lobster are fortunate enough to have explicit permission to disregard God's older dictate in Acts 10, 9-16. But what of other commands? In most cases, Occam would deny that they are universally and eternally binding. If they are eternally binding, it would only be the case because God explicitly declared them to be so. How then can we have any reliable ethical compass? For Occam and Luther, the answer is virtue ethics. Through Scripture, God reveals the characteristics of the Holy Kingdom and its citizens. Specifically, God calls for the virtues of justice and mercy, Micah 6, 8, and the so-called theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, 1 Corinthians 13. So, it's up to contingent individuals in contingent situations to follow their consciences as they make moral decisions in accord with these scripturally revealed virtues. The Bible cannot serve as a quick reference guide for life's many perplexing situations. Duties determined by pure reason, or deontology, most certainly cannot serve, reliably at least, at all ethical crossroads. In this way, incidentally, Søren Kierkegaard, uh, in his famous concept of the knight of faith, allowed for the so-called teleological suspension of the ethical, and it's related to this idea. As is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's suggestion that it is better to do a bad thing and then confess the sin to God than it is to be an evil person who follows all the established rules set forth by evil authorities. In this regard, both Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer were aligned with the intellectual tradition of Ockham and Luther. To illustrate, consider Paul's surprising but insightful statements about sin, conscience, and unclear moral situations in Romans 14. Christians were debating whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul teaches something that is emphasized throughout Occam's ethic, that there is no universal or unchanging moral quality to a particular act, contra deontology, but only a moral concern for the results of that act, making him partly a consequentialist here, but all with the fundamental consideration being love, which demonstrates his resonance with the virtue ethicist's perspective. Specifically, Paul writes, quote, "I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean." That's Romans 14:14. 14, 14. What then is the guiding principle here? An individual's intentions. A familiar maxim asserts that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Occam might say that the road to heaven is paved with good intentions. But Luther would reject the idea that we pave a road to heaven at all. He might also say that the unforgivable sin, perhaps the only deadly sin, is the road to self damnation, And it is this. It is to go against what one knows to be true. For to do so is to act in bad faith against what an individual thinks God is calling him or her to do. This helps to explain some of the difficult statements of Luther in his Heidelberg Theses of 1518, which not only set forth his idea of a theology of the cross, but also relate the moral quality of an action to whether or not someone is acting in faith or not. The upshot of all this is that for Luther and Occam, it is of utmost importance that an individual follow his or her conscience. In practical terms, this means that the Lutheran tradition also urges us to do what we think we should do when we are confronted by tricky ethical dilemmas. This is not a trust in the concept of synderesis, or a properly calibrated moral compass, It's a rejection of the idea that we should go against conscience when threatened by authoritarian pressures or bribed by financial incentives to deny the truth. And this is where the Christian university can come in. This might even entail doing something that appears evil to society or religious authorities. Thus asking whether the powers that be give an individual permission to act according to a bound conscience is unthinkable. Hence Luther's Heidelberg Thesis 4. Quote, although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless really eternal merits. Think here, for instance, of Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, who's been told in this section I want to talk about uh, by his society that he must tattle on his escaped slave friend Jim or face the judgment of hell. Here's the crucial passage put into the mouth of the character Huck as he holds a letter to Jim's purported owner, and it's a letter that would turn him in. Here's the line, quote, It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, then says to myself, All right, then, I'll go to hell and tore it up. Although Huck cannot craft an ethical or theological argument to justify his actions to big people, he acts to protect his friend anyway. Would that we would have more of these heroically ethical I'll-be-damned moments among the students in our churches and that we would reward Rather than chide them for their moral bravery. Incidentally, this business about the universal and eternal character of the law in the Via Antiqua and its rejection in the Via Moderna uh, and Luther is likely behind an ongoing Lutheran controversy related to antinomianism and the so called third use of the law. I'll concede that there might be libertines then and now who might colloquially be called antinomians. But the original concern was not whether a believer ought to be complacent in sin and remain parked on the road of sanctification. Rather, the question was whether an eternal, immovable, metaphysical reality called the law was needed for baptized members of the new kingdom who might look to the virtues of justice, mercy, faith, hope, and love instead of codified laws. The controversy about the functions of the law was at root a question of whether there was an impersonal and unalterable law to which Yahweh himself had to adhere. Now, you might be wondering here why I've diverted our attention to Lutheran ethics. There are a few good reasons for this detour. For one thing, I'm increasingly persuaded that Emmanuel Levinas was right that ethics is the first philosophy. Ethics has never been more important for our pursuit of truth in contemporary post-truth American politics, which too often begins with intellectual gangsterism, ignores evidence, and lacks interest in common ground. If nothing else, we are wise to recognize the way in which Romans 118 states something like this in the reverse, which might be paraphrased as, Sin has caused our ethical failure, which has resulted in epistemic confusion. But the more important reason I turn to ethics is because it has direct bearing on the ethics of belief in a Lutheran context. If Occam and Luther are right that we are called to do what we think we should do and thinking can be conceived as one of many possible moral acts it follows that we are morally obliged to think what we think we should think. If anything is at the heart of Lutheran epistemology I believe this is it this may sound woefully elementary to some of you. To others, it may appear to be a tautology that gets us no further for all my characteristic loquaciousness. But to some of you, I suspect it is either liberating or dangerous. The fact is, it's both. It's dangerous because it's liberating. And I believe it is Lutheran. Though, admittedly, it could be the reason for a Lutheran student to deconstruct their Lutheranism. Following conscience is something that can inspire boldness and confidence known to the blessed martyrs. It can also lead one to admit that they do not believe in the faith of their fathers after all. The only thing Lutheran epistemology cannot abide is dishonesty. This is the unforgivable sin, to know darn well what the truth is, but to deny it because the powers that be might come quote and destroy both the temple and the nation end quote to cite John eleven forty eight in John temple refers to an individual sunk costs in a particular religious system or institution which causes that individual to be predisposed to reject any denial of the spiritual merit he or she has accrued through the system. Nation relates to tribalism at its worst and cultural security at its best. But such a concern can also blind us to ways in which our cultural values are in conflict with spiritual truth. Lutheran epistemology, then, is about public confession with humility and courage. It was apparent as early as when Luther gave his famous speech at the Diet of Worms, 1521. Whether or not the standard account was spoken precisely the way it's been told, it perfectly illustrates the flavor of Lutheran epistemology. The quote goes like this. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Note especially that Luther says it is unwise to go against conscience, that his sources for belief are biblical texts and plain reason, and his rejection of the preeminence of human ecclesial authority is bold. This Worms stand, then, is the Occam-Luther approach to knowledge and life in a nutshell. And consider the subsequent Diet of Speyer, 1526, where protesting princes gave the evangelical movement the moniker Protestant. It's easy to miss the fact that this was a monumental shift in Western culture and once again represents a Lutheran epistemology. Who were these lay people to resist the will of the church and the empire? They were followers of Christ bound by their consciences. They did what they thought they should do because they were given permission to think what they thought they should think. This takes us to the Lutheran confessions as a whole. For some, they represent a ball and chain attached to intellectual life. For others, they represent a cudgel, with which to beat down any creative thinker who steps out of line. For me, they represent a Lutheran epistemology in action. The confessions were the public witness of laity and clergy, who in the face of empire and authoritarian religious leaders were bold to confess what they believed to be the truth, It is this boldness and fidelity to Scripture and Jesus and conscience that I hope can be central to the conservative Lutheran ethos today. The confessions were proclaimed by people who had recently become unshackled from intellectual tyranny. Today, unfortunately, many have lost confidence in the intellectual merit of the confessions themselves. So they ironically use the confessions as a new set of ideological shackles rather than as exemplars of faithful, critical thinking. Thus, it is this act of theological boldness, the writing and proclaiming and signing of the confessions themselves, that is a core treasure of Lutheranism. In Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov, one comes across a strange use of the term Lutheran. It seems throughout the novel that Lutheran can serve as a synonym for rationalist or anti-supernatural thinker. This has been hard to understand for many of my students who have grown up in conservative Lutheranism and don't see it that way at all. Partly, this has to do with Lutheran skepticism regarding Russian Orthodox folk beliefs related to relics. But partly, this relates to the association between biblical criticism and modernistic trends in German-Lutheran universities following the Enlightenment. But more significantly, it relates to the general desacralization of intellectual life that followed on the heels of the Lutheran Reformation throughout Europe. Recently, several Roman Catholic observers have also been blaming Lutheran higher education in America for the secularization of church-related universities sometimes by appealing to folks like Occam and Scotus. My response to such thinking is twofold. On the one hand, Lutheran epistemology is not interested in desacralizing knowledge since both the left and the right-hand kingdoms are under God's overall reign and since Lutheran thought is rooted in an appreciation for the ways in which God is at work in matter it is interested in the sacred that exists in, with, and under the world and more intimately in the Eucharistic feast. As Oswald Bayer writes, all our Christological speech about the unio personalis would for its part degenerate into a mere intellectual game or be nothing but a cipher for the hidden true nature of every human being if we were to forget that it is nothing but the contemplation of that event that enters constitutively into the realm of the bodily word, which is both oral and public. Luther thus ended up with a concept of worldliness and the essential worldly mediation of all spiritual reality. End quote. This means that parents need not shield their children and teachers need not avoid uncomfortable evidence from the natural world in their classes. If educated young people can be trusted to read the Bible, surely they can be trusted to look through a microscope. They may misinterpret what they encounter, but working that out is part of what makes learning fun. Since they are saved by grace, through faith, on account of Christ alone, they do not explore their world with the fear that mistakes in their theoretical work in either science or theology will put their souls in jeopardy. Now, By setting someone free to discover the truth on their own, something a good parent does, and something a good church body does, and something a good professor does, they do in fact offer people the freedom to leave the tradition. Only cults lock the exit doors. Nonetheless, despite the inherent risks in giving people intellectual space to explore and test hypotheses, if we trust in truth to ultimately vindicate itself, as I believe Lutheran epistemology invites us to do, we can trust that things will work out as they ought to in the end. There are two practical examples of this. First, Luther was dubious about Copernican cosmology, though he tolerated the exploration of the cosmological model at the University of Wittenberg. Second, Luther was skeptical about Melanchthon's interest in occult science science. Uh, and astrology but let Melanchthon's circle of students test out the theories behind occult methodology nonetheless these two pedagogical cases are instructive in that they demonstrate the benefits of freedom of inquiry within an institution that values evidence and truth and is set within the context of the unconditional love of God they could explore freely because their salvation didn't depend on them staying in line. Ultimately, of course, as Luther let these things play out, Copernican cosmology prevailed, while astrology proved to be a pseudoscience. The determining factor in both cases was empirical evidence. There was ribbing and banter here and there, but there was also a generosity to this academic culture. Where in data not authoritarianism ruled. Unfortunately, this generosity was not always carried forward by Luther's heirs. Copernicus was still being rejected by some in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, even as late as the 20th century. Indeed, LCMS president and dogmatician Francis Pieper questioned Copernican theory in his famous Christian dogmatics. Quote, It is unworthy of a Christian to interpret scripture, which he knows to be God's own word, according to human opinions or hypotheses. And that includes the Copernican cosmic system, or to have others thus to interpret scripture to him. Now, before we laugh off this perspective too quickly, and let me assure you, I believe that this particular case is indicative of stubborn Lutheran anti-intellectualism. There's also a way in which Pieper's Perspective is consistent with what we've been noting about Lutheran epistemology. If Pieper were to censure those who believed Copernicus or accuse them of being immoral or straying from the fold, um, he would not be acting faithfully within the Lutheran tradition. If, however, one pushes back against Copernicus, inspired by Luther's preference for immediate sensory experience over and above theoretical models, there may be something more interesting going on here. Luther was often more interested in how things were immediately perceived than how that perception ought to fit into a philosophical theory or scientific system. To this extent, one finds that Edmund Husserl, 1859 to 1938, the father of phenomenology and convert from Judaism to Lutheranism, picked up an interesting aspect of Luther's epistemological mantle here. Luther's thinking was not, of course, identical to Husserl's. But Husserl picked up on something related to the philosophy of science that isn't as strange as it sounds at first. The first posthumous publication from Husserl was a treatise in which he challenged the arrogance with which scientism declared the ultimate triumph of Copernicus' model and didn't have any more space for conversation. Husserl didn't deny the evidence brought forth by the cosmologists of his day, but rather he questioned the way cosmological models are used to dictate a culture's conception of the universe. For Husserl, we ought to start with a recognition that we do not perceive the world as moving, and that in a sense, quote, each point of the universe could equally well serve as the reference point of movement, end quote. Hemenka summarizes Husserl's thinking as follows, quote, The naivete of the natural scientific attitude is not in its incorrect facts. Husserl does not want to deny the results of science. The problem is that, in its naive form, science refuses to acknowledge that there is a more original or primitive level of constitution without which the scientific enterprise does not finally have sense or value. Here, then, is a theme from Lutheran epistemology in the hands of Husserl. One that places immediate perception over the theoretical system. So long as this isn't used as a tool to dismiss illegitimate research and inquiry, it provides a valuable corrective to overly systematic ways of thinking that might occur in secular universities. Moreover, this has a long and honorable tradition within philosophy going back to the classical era. Some observers have lamented that Occam and through his influence Luther, imbibed skepticism. This accusation of skepticism sounds to some like an allegation of theological treason. Yet if we understand by skepticism the insights of Sextus Empiricus, 160 to 21 BC, specifically the idea that while perceptions are incorrigible, systematic interpretations of perceptions seem indeterminate, then this resonates with Occam and Luther. Occam and Luther resemble Sextus Empiricus to the extent that they suspend judgment when a bit of data doesn't easily fit within a system. It is not a rejection of divine intervention. It isn't a rejection of the transcendent. Instead, it is recognition of the underdetermination of data to a larger theory. Underdetermination does not entail nihilism or even pessimism. Rather, it opens up a broad field of vision for innovation, creativity, exploration, and wonder. According to Empiricus, it is dogmatism that takes the fun out of intellectual inquiry and also leads to cultural animosity and, personally, to intellectual anxiety. Given all this... Lutheran epistemology shares with skepticism a call to quietude and rest. And the Lutheran version offers far more peace than Empiricus's ever could. Lutherans can rest easy when it comes to intellectual perplexity because they trust that God has things under control, that the created world is a gift to be explored as an act of worship, and that the natural world need not be an occasion for panic when we can't provide a theoretical model to make sense of anomalous data we might encounter. Marinating in the grace and unconditional love of God, Lutherans can treat intellectual inquiry like a fun mystery novel read with a coffee on a lazy Saturday morning rather than a late Sunday night scramble to get one's homework finished before a deadline. Thus, the Lutheran refrain, "Werbum Domini, Manet in Aeternum, that is, the word of the Lord endures forever, ought to be a guiding principle for those who are committed to Lutheran epistemology. We need not prop up a system for the sake of the system. Rather, we let the truth prevail as truth. And we encourage thinkers to discover and embrace and find joy in this truth because it is true not because they are immoral for interpreting data in a manner that differs from our interpretation. More pointedly, it seems to me, and to many of the students over the years I've had, I think, that whenever Lutheran academics turn to hostility and rhetorical aggression as a response to those who hold differing beliefs, this is neither a sign of confidence in the truth nor confidence in Lutheran epistemology, but rather reveals their apprehensiveness about a theological edifice that might be on shaky ground. Lutheran epistemology relies on empirical data, refuses to systematize that data, whether from nature or from scripture, in a heavy-handed manner, rejects the idea that humans can assume what God must do according to a priori reason, and encourages all members of the community to confess the truth as they perceive it freed from authoritarianism and bolstered by a belief that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and on account of Christ alone, not through assent to dogmatic propositions as such, nor even through fidelity to a particular epistemology or church body. Epistemology of the cross entails a respect for the contingent, for empirical perceptions, and for individual freedom of thought, because knowledge itself is a gift From a loving God to humanity. Therefore, the takeaways for you, the individual thinker, are as follows. One. You should do what you think you should do. Two. You should think what you think you should think. Three. You, not an institution or an organization, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Four. To go against conscience is to commit the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Five, since a truly Christian academic setting will be uniquely committed to guarding all these values, I believe that if an academically free space is possible in our society, it can only exist at a Christian university.
0: And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not
1: going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Because you found this letter low too much.